Well, hey, it is great to be with you again this weekend, uh, wherever you happen to be watching from. I know that there's uh, a bunch of you sitting on your couches at home uh, all across Western Canada, but uh, a lot of you right here in Abbotsford, so I want to say a big hello to you. Uh, and then particularly shout out to uh, Mission uh, over north of the Fraser River. Uh, it's really great to be able to look through this camera and look into the auditorium there in Mission and see all your happy, smiling faces. Uh, except Pastor Frank looks grumpy. And then Real Life Community Church, uh, guys over in Fleetwood, great to have you guys with us. Uh, first few weeks into this new uh, relationship uh, with Northview, and we are so glad to have you guys watching in. And for those of you listening and you're wondering, what are these other campuses? Hey, if you live in Mission, you live in uh, Fleetwood area, or you know people who do, uh, tell them about these uh, various campuses of Northview. Anyway, we are going to jump into the, the weekend message. We are in the book of Isaiah. If you've been around the last few weeks, you should know that. And you'll want to have your Bibles open to Isaiah 44. And we're going to jump into that in just a few minutes. But could I tell you what your problem is? Uh, don't you love it when somebody wants to tell you what your problem is? Uh, your problem is this, you're nearsighted. Uh, actually, all of us are nearsighted. Now you go, what's nearsighted? Well, you know what, when I was 10 or 11 years old, uh, grade five, six, somewhere back like that, don't remember precisely when, but I do remember that I was getting headaches. Don't even remember for how long it went along. It might have been a few weeks, maybe it was a few months, but by late afternoon, uh, at the end of the school day, I was having headaches. And so long story short, I eventually end up at the eye doctor, which was actually just two doors down from our house, the corner of Market Street, Montezuma Avenue, Cortez, Colorado. There I sit in the optometrist chair, and for the very first time in my short life, I heard the words, nearsighted. Uh, the doctor explained to me that uh, I could see well up close, but I couldn't see far away. So it, nearsightedness, if you know what it is, those of you who have experienced this know that if you take your glasses off, uh, I'm fine right here close. I'm fine right here near. I can see my hands. I can see the script. I can read my Bible. I can even see you through that camera. Uh, but beyond 15, 20 feet, things start to get blurry. And so driving and needing to um, read road signs or sitting in a classroom as a grade five or six student, not realizing that everyone else could read what the teacher was writing on the chalkboard and I couldn't. It was amazing when I got my first set of glasses. The change in my worldview, my perspective, the, the precision, the crispness of everything I could see. Uh, when you fast forward about 25, maybe 30 years later, I don't know how long it was, it was almost humorous when I listened to my own daughter, who in her around grade five or six goes to the eye doctor and she gets the same diagnosis. You need a pair of glasses. When she comes home with that first set of specks on her face, uh, she's quite a flamboyant character, and she's running around the house and she's saying things like, I didn't know the trees looked like that. I didn't know the yard looked like that. I didn't know the sky looked like that. Oh my goodness, I can, I can see. Mom and Dad, I didn't know you looked like that. Uh, the clarity of vision that comes with a new set of glasses. So I'm nearsighted and so are you, uh, but not necessarily in the physical sense of speaking, spiritually. You see, there's something in human nature that we have to fight to get beyond today, to lift our eyes up, because we tend to let our head bow down, our eyes drop down, our focus drops, and our long-range vision 
fades. We get lost in the weeds of today's problems and today's situations. So life's like a series of highs and lows, ups and downs. You know that. I think if we were to draw it out, uh, you've all seen this when the, when the heart monitor is, and I'll just, you know, scribble away here a little bit. It's really rough, but you know what I mean. So you, you, you could see this on television. You see it when you go to the hospital. They plug into this heart monitor, or maybe you've had an EKG test, and you see the heart flipping and blopping. I think in a lot of ways, that's the story of our lives. Uh, there are highs and lows. There are these mountaintop experiences, and then there are the deep valleys. And so if each one of you had a sheet of paper like this, and you said, okay, here's your EKG, your life's EKG, uh, you could literally name the mountaintop experience over the course of your life, all the great joys and the triumphs and the victories, the, the spiritual high points where you felt so near to God, you felt his presence and his power, uh, things that you've accomplished that you're proud of. Uh, you could also name those valley floor experiences. You know, as I think back over my life, I think of summer camp experiences as a kid. I, I remember as a 14-year-old climbing to the top of Mount of the Holy Cross in the middle of the state of Colorado and the vistas from that 14,000-foot peak. Uh, of course, Bible school and getting married and having each one of our children and the first job that I held down, the first business that I started, the first church that we were called to lead, and on and on the list of highs go. But along the course of my life, on the low end, I would write things like my dad's death when I was 15, my friend's death at age 22 in a tragic car accident, the, the time when our almost three-year-old son pulled a pot of boiling water off the stove down onto his chest and arms and has left him with lifelong scarring, uh, the early days of our marriage when it was so difficult for Carolyn and I to get on the same page, and, and on and on that list could go of the highs and the lows of our life. But as long as we're not flatlined, we know that we're still alive. And the challenge, of course, is to see across the vistas of life to God's eternal plan. And there's a challenge on both ends. When you're on the mountaintop and you're skimming across uh, the tops of the other mountains, you forget that there are valleys in between. And of course, when you're down in the depths of the shadows of one of those valleys, it's hard to remember that there is another mountaintop yet coming. If you're new to this study, we are in the book of Isaiah, and it is a massive book. Uh, we're taking just a chunk out of the middle of it. In many ways, it's a really dense, it's, a, it's not an easy read. But it is a panoramic view of God's working. Uh, Isaiah preaches for over 50 years, and he prophesies into the future 100 years later with the people of God in Israel, 700 years later, the birth of Jesus Christ uh, predicted through Isaiah's pen. And the chunk that we're looking at is specifically today, chapter 44 and 45. And it was written for the valley floor. It was written for one of those downward spikes on the EKG, if you will. The question, what do you do when you don't see what God sees? When you don't have the long-range vision that your maker has? when it feels like you're stumbling around in the darkness. So this is your problem. It's my problem too. We are often nearsighted and we need to lift our eyes. Lift our eyes above our circumstances and onto our God. Behold your God, Isaiah continues to cry to us. 
So what do we know and understand about who he is and what he has done, what he has promised to do? And the short answer, the pat answers, the cliche answers are, well, God is good all the time. Uh, We know that God uh, is good toward those who love him and all things work according to his purposes and for our good, Romans 8 tells us. And those things are true. But what do you say to God when you don't understand his ways, his methods, his timing? How do you respond when you think that maybe God made a mistake? He's doing it wrong. Because actually that's what's taking place in the text that we're going to look at today. So, remember the circumstance. Just go back, do a little homework in your mind of the people that we're talking about. They're as exiles in Babylon. We're here in this foreign land, a place we don't fit in. It doesn't feel like home, Lord, because it wasn't home. Life shouldn't be like this. The ways of these people around us is not your way, Lord. Their customs, their values, their priorities are so antagonistic to everything that we hold to be true. God, I think these people hate us. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. Is there some meaning that we should be looking for in the midst of this pain, Father? And God has an answer for them, but it comes with an unexpected twist. I'm going to do something through you, and I'm going to get you through this, but it's, not, it's maybe not in the way that you would anticipate. William Copper was a poet and an author. He lived 300 years ago, the 1700s. He was a contemporary of John Newton and William Wilberforce. He was part of the abolitionist movement in, in England in that uh, time in history. He was a man who had experienced deep pain uh, really throughout his lifetime. Uh, As a six-year-old, his mother had died giving birth to his younger brother. And almost entirely through his adult life, he struggled with dark depression. Uh, What today we would probably categorize as mental health issues. He, He at one point in time was institutionalized and at one point in time grew so dark that he attempted to take his own life. But in the midst of all those trials, the Lord carried him and the Lord proved himself to be true and faithful and good through all of this pain. And near the later part of his life, he wrote a very famous hymn called Conflict, Light Shining Out of Darkness. You may not know the title to the hymn, but I'll guarantee you many of you know the words to this hymn. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him. For his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You see, those words could be written over this chapter in Israel's history. Where are you, God, when I don't understand your ways? Now we're looking at a large chunk, a full chapter and a half, the middle of chapter 44 through the end of chapter 45. We won't read it in its entirety, we'll read a good chunk of it. But I want to take a walk through it and try to draw some conclusion. But I'll I'll frame it for us around four statements 
that we could imagine God making. And it's sort of my paraphrase of the text. The first is, I've got a great memory so you can rejoice. God's saying, I've got a great memory so you can rejoice. I've got a plan and I've got the man. In, in other words, you can trust me. I've got this. Uh, thirdly, he says to us, I'm not prepared to argue about this. Or in our words, we might say, stay in your lane. And finally, uh, it's our vernacular, but I think the Lord is really saying, I've got bigger fish to fry. I've got bigger items on the agenda. You need to lift your eyes to what I'm doing. So the first we're going to look at, uh, I've got great memory, so you can rejoice. Uh, chapter 44, verses 21 to 23 says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you're my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I blotted out your transgression like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Uh, this chunk, those three verses, are really a transition from what went before and what is coming next. Uh, remember. Remember these things. Well, remember what? Well, of course, everything that had gone before in the 43 chapters, but specifically that conversation from chapter 40 forward. Comfort, comfort my people. Remind them of the glory of the Lord and the, the word of the Lord and the strong arm of the Lord. Uh, remind them that the idols that they tend to bow down to are not gods at all and that there is only one living and true God. Remind them, you are precious. Uh, your name is written on the palm of my hands. And at the end of verse 21, you get this phrase, you will not be forgotten. In other words, the Lord is saying, I've got a great memory. I've got a great memory. I have redeemed you. I have bought you back from your troubles and all creation is singing praise and you can join in as well. It's interesting that we land on that phrase on Thanksgiving weekend. And we could jump over to Psalm 107 and just spend a time walking through all the things that we have to be thankful for. That passage opens this way, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from trouble. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, Psalm 107 is long. It's 43 verses. Don't have time to read it. But he gives four examples. He goes, some of you are wandering around in desert wastelands right now. Some of you find yourselves captive. You're in prison. You have fallen into uh, disrepair and ruin. Some of you are in a mess of your own sinful desires and making. And some of you are just experiencing the storms of life. You're like a businessman who's out on the high seas and encounters a storm. But the common denominator in all of those illustrations that he uses is this. When those people were in trouble, they cried to their God and he answered them. And then the psalm ends like this. And he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Well, here in Isaiah 44, he's like, sing for joy, O heavens, join in with all creation. And now you look at this and you're like, that's awesome. That's amazing. It's uplifting. It's Thanksgiving weekend. 
What an amazing reminder to us that I will rejoice in the Lord in the good times and in the hard times. But reality check, Pastor Mark, or reality check, prophet Isaiah, that 2020 vision looking back on God's rescue is awesome. But right now we are in a mess and we don't see the solution that's coming down the line. We're still trapped in Psalm 137 by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept. Those are nice flowery cliches about life, but you don't know the trouble I'm in right now. So God answers them. But his answer is not what they might have expected. And so we get to our second statement. I've got the plan and I've got the man. Isaiah 44, uh, 24 to 28 Uh, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be Laid. What the Lord is saying to these people is, I've got a plan and I've got the man to carry it out. I've not forgotten my promise to you. Uh, what was that promise? Uh, well, back when Solomon was dedicating the temple and he's praying to the Lord and he's like, Lord, the day is going to come when we're going to forget you, when we're going to rebel, when we're going to wander away. And Lord, in that darkness, even if we are carried captive away, Lord, would you listen to the cries, the prayer of your people? And, and the Lord says, yes, of course, amen. When you find yourself in those situations and when you turn to me, I will hear, I will answer, I will heal your land. And here in Isaiah 44 and 45, we begin to hear the specifics of what God's plan was. I'm going to use a plan that maybe you would have never thought up. I'm going to move a political leader. Get this. I'm going to move a political leader who does not know me, who does not worship me, and ultimately who will want to take credit for this decision. I am going to use a man that you would have never chosen to use to orchestrate your freedom. Cyrus is going to decree a return to Jerusalem and a laying of the foundation of the temple. Read on into chapter 45, the first few verses. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, The God of Israel who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. He's speaking to Cyrus. I name you 
though you do not know me. I pick a man that you would have never chosen, and the reaction in this context is swift and it is passionate. The people of God, in essence, cry out, wait a minute, God, we we must have misunderstood you. Did you say Cyrus? You've made a mistake, God. That's not the solution that we had in mind. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. You see, it's not an isolated instance that God takes a human agency and uses them for his purposes. Uh, God said to Moses, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I am able to display my glory before my people who are trapped in Egypt. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, a few years earlier, uh, invades Jerusalem and he drags people across the desert to Babylon. But when God writes a letter to them through Jeremiah's pen, God takes all the credit. I am the one who sent you to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar might have dragged you there, but it was literally I who took you there. I who sent you there, the Lord God says. Uh, Most significant of all, the Jews conspire together with the Romans in the first century to crucify Jesus Christ. And in the eyes of the world, it was these earthly men who put him to death. But in the end, Jesus says of himself, no one takes my life. I lay my life down. You might think that you did this, but it was my plan that got this done. And so in chapter 45, verse 5, God speaks to Cyrus and he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. I'm just going to pause right there. God talking to this secular leader, a pagan king, and he is saying to him, I am going to equip you for the task that I have assigned you to. Now, in this moment of revelation, you can almost anticipate the blowback from God's people. Wait a minute, God, you can't be serious. Why would you use a pagan king to fulfill your plans? Cyrus isn't the man who should be rebuilding the city. It should be some king who comes from the line of David. This is not the solution that we would expect from you, God. And it takes us into our third statement. If you drop down to verse 9, we we get this idea of God saying, I'm not prepared to argue about it. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Stay in your lane. I'm not prepared to argue with you about this. So in verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot, an earthen pot. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. You will command me. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up. Speaking of Cyrus, I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. See, there's an echo there back to chapter 40. If you remember a couple weeks ago, in chapter 40, God, in essence, says to people, you know, who did I turn to for counsel when I was creating the world? 
Who consulted with the Lord to help him in his architecture of the, the universe? Uh, you see, I am God and there is no other beside me. I am great, I am powerful, and my counsel will indeed stand. And in these verses, God is basically saying, you know what, I'm going to accomplish what I'm going to accomplish. And frankly, I'm not prepared to argue with you about it. Does the clay jump off the potter's wheel to argue with the one who is molding and shaping it? Does that infant just about to be born argue with its mom and dad? Why are you bringing me into the world? No, ridiculous. You want to know what I've got planned? Well, it's I, the creator of the earth, the designer of the heavens, and I have chosen Cyrus to build my city, to set my exiles free and to lay the foundations of the temple. And frankly, I don't really feel the need to debate this with you. My ways are higher than your ways. Now, honestly, folks, this kind of talk is almost offensive to our modern ears because we're not used to anyone telling us to stay in our lane. We've got an opinion about everything, and we are great opinion givers, advice givers to everyone in the world, maybe even God himself. And our passage ends then with one more statement that we can imagine the Lord saying, and it's this, I'm doing all of this because I've got bigger fish to fry. I got bigger fish to fry. I've on to a bigger project. You need to lift your eyes up. This worldwide evangelism program that I'm on about, you need to lift your eyes to the nations, to the long range vision and the plan of God for not only the people of God, but also the people of all nations. And from chapter uh, 45, verse 14, on down to the end of the chapter, which I'm not going to read all of it. God, in essence, says, you know what? Let me work out my plan in my time and in my way. And here's what you're going to see happen. Egypt and Egypt representing all of the nations will come to you, to the people of God, and they will want to follow you. They will want to live with you. They will plead with you. Tell us about your God. And, and why is that? Because they see God in you. Verse 14, it says there, surely God is in you and there is no other beside him. In other words, the nations are going to be watching and seeing what God does with the people of God. And the nations will be drawn by the spirit of God as they see the good works of God among his people. And what God is saying is, I'm concerned that my glory will be put on display for all the nations. I want a watching world to see how my people respond under pressure. That's a theme that comes up again and again and again in the New Testament. Jesus uh, said to us, let your light shine before others so that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. They look at your life and they glorify God. 1 Peter 2, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, 1 Peter is such a great parallel to Isaiah because Peter writes to these people as strangers, as aliens, as exiles who are enduring hardship. And we hear the same in Isaiah as God says to them, you might be tempted to say, God, why have you hidden yourself? But lift up your eyes 
because I have never hidden my plans. I, I, I didn't speak in secret. Everything I have done has been out there for the world to see. I've declared my glory in creation and I've displayed my love and faithfulness to Israel and to my children for all the nations to see. And then this passage ends with this beautiful invitation. Verse 22 into the end of the chapter, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Turn to me and be saved. When you're in the deep darkness of the valley floor, turn to me and be saved. When you can't see above the circumstances that you're in right now, turn to me and be saved. You're nearsighted. Lift your eyes up. Behold your God. Change your focus that God can use even the pain that you are in right now for his glory and for his good. Now, these people want to argue. They continue to argue. What about Babylon, Lord? Tell us about that. And, and, and he, in essence, says, don't worry about them. I'll take care of them. That's next week's text. But right now, let's talk about getting you some new glasses. Right now, I need to lift you up and out of the muck and mire of your life. Right now, I need to get your feet back onto solid ground. The last three or four weeks you might think it sounds like a broken record. That there is a reason in Jesus Christ that we never ever lose hope. It is anchored here in this Old Testament prophecy that God cannot and will not forget about His children. And that even when we are neck deep in the battles of life that we have to remember that He has already won the war. That in dark days we remember what He promised us in the days of light. Light shining out of darkness, to quote William Copper. Viktor Frankl, a name you might be familiar with, an Austrian psychiatrist who was also a Holocaust survivor and endured the hell of the Auschwitz death camp. After the war, he wrote on the lessons of human nature that he observed behind the walls of that concentration camp and specifically the power of hope to carry people through. And it's a, a really an oversimplification of what he wrote, but he basically said that those who were able to survive the camps were those who had a hope beyond the walls of the camp. That's a, a very simple way of summarizing what he had to say. They were living for something beyond the concentration camp. He said this, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Now, Frankel was not a Christian, and you might critique this as simply humanistic thought and its great self-help philosophy. But on the other side of the world, at the same period of time, there was a, a man named Langdon Gilkey. He was an American teacher teaching in China, and he was part of the, the Japanese sweep through China, putting all of the expatriates, all of the foreigners into internment camps. 
And he spent two and a half years in a compound called the, the Shantung Compound. And he kept a journal of his daily life and he has, he has written a book by that same title. Expats from around the world were there, a whole hodgepodge of society, businessmen and professors, missionaries, lawyers, doctors, and then including junkies and prostitutes, little children up to the elderly and the dying. He, he said it was like a living laboratory of watching human nature crammed together inside this camp in tight space under stress and watching how humans interact with one another. Now, now Gilkey had a nominal Christian faith before entering the camp, which he said he intentionally turned away from in order to survive the rigors of this camp. But he was surprised by what he learned behind the gates, particularly from one man in particular, a man named Eric Little who in his book, he, he changes everyone's name, it's Eric Ridley in the book, but he's referring to Eric Little, and you might be familiar with Eric Little's story. A Scottish Christian missionary who was an Olympic runner. Uh, if you've seen the film Chariots of Fire or read the book, you will know his story. A man who refused to run in the Olympics on a Sunday, who gave up his spot in a race because he would not dishonor God and the Sabbath, who later goes to China, and he is in this internment camp. And he says in watching Eric Little, sharing his goods with others, organizing games for the children, whistling and singing his way around the camp, acting as a mediator and a negotiator between parties when they were in dispute. In short, this one man brought light and life and laughter to the most desperate place on earth. Now, tragically, Eric Little had a brain tumor and he died just a few short weeks before that camp uh, was freed and he, he was not able to get surgery and he died in that camp. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with Isaiah 44, 45, or anything to do with our lives for that matter? And it's simply this, that we need a long-range vision of both our lives and of God's eternal plans. Because if you're a thoughtful reader, you may already be ahead of me. What do you do when God's timing is not our timing? What do you do when God takes years to answer us? Because it's easy to throw out a few pat answers and cliches from a story like this. That we should do more remembering and rejoicing. That we should join creation in praising God. That even in the dark days, we should be people of hope. And, and hear, hear me clearly, the, all those things are absolutely true. I'm not arguing that. But those conclusions are easy when we're looking back, having seen the deliverance of God. The greatest challenge comes in facing a crisis with no quick fix, no easy solution. You see, we tend to read passages like this on fast forward speed. They go to Babylon and God raises up Cyrus and they come back home and build the temple. But 70 years happened in between. So it's 2021. Imagine if the Lord promised us something that we would receive 70 years from now. You can do the math on that. How old will you be in 70 years? How many of us will not be here in 70 years as we wait for God's promise? 
Think of another story, a young Joseph sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And we again read it on fast forward. And at the end of his life, he says to his brothers, well, what you intended as evil, God intended for good. But as you read it and you write down the dates, you realize 25 to almost 30 years had passed from the time they threw him in that pit until he was able to say to them, what you intended for evil, God did for good. Three long years decades. How do you hang on to hope when you might not ever see the fulfillment of God's promise in your lifetime? It's precisely what Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 says. These all died in faith. These great men and women of faith who went before us, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But how do we do this? Tangibly and practically, how do we do this? Let me give you a few suggestions. Think of the immigrant cultures all around us. How does an immigrant culture keep their culture alive? We are immigrants. We are exiles. We are outcasts. We are foreigners. We are aliens. The scripture says we don't belong here. We speak the language of our home, our native tongue, We're bilingual. We have to speak the language of this earth, but we speak the language of heaven. We remind ourselves again and again that we don't ultimately belong here. And so we're not freaked out when life isn't perfect here because this isn't our home. We sing the songs of home. We read letters from home. We gather with other exiles, other immigrants, and we share our stories, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our struggles. We keep hope alive by reminding ourselves and reminding one another that this is not our true home. And above all else, we keep focusing our eyes on Jesus, on our Deliverer, on our capital S Savior, lifting our eyes, lifting our eyes, lifting our eyes. You see, friends, the church can survive and can thrive in the most hostile environments. And the human soul can maintain hope in the face of crushing, crushing pain. Helen Rosevere was a medical doctor. She was a missionary to the Congo from 1953 to 1973. Uh, She worked with WEC International, and she was responsible for building and overseeing clinics and hospitals. She was a brilliant woman, a, a single woman. She never married. In later life, she traveled extensively around the world, calling young men and women to follow God, to pursue His will for their lives, to trust Him that He was good, that He had a plan for their lives. She was a powerful speaker. She called hundreds, if not thousands, of young adults into overseas missionary service. Carolyn and I had the privilege of hearing her speak in person here in Central Heights Church back in the early 90s. And you might wonder about what made this small English woman such a force when she stood before young adults. And what it was was her story, and specifically her crushing, excruciating story, and the triumph of God in her life. You see, she served in the Congo from 53 to 73. But in 1964, the Congo underwent a civil war and her hospital was taken by rebel forces and she herself was kidnapped and held captive for five weeks. And during those five weeks, as a 39-year-old single woman, she was beaten 
and she was raped. But by God's grace, she survived, and some locals who she had cared for were able to rescue her. And she returned home to England, broken and bruised. But two years later, she returns to the Congo to help rebuild what had been destroyed. And you say, how could a woman do this, and where did she find her strength? And I won't do her story justice. You can read her biography. But as she talks about the deep struggle and the process and the study of theology and prayer and counseling, but at the end she says, I was unable to explain why this happened to me. And so I had to make the choice of faith that I will either wallow in my brokenness and in my despair, or I will rise above it and I will say to God, I will thank you for this experience, even if you never tell me why. Now that's deep stuff. That's heavy stuff. But we have to press into it because we know this, that in our Instagram world, that no one's life is as good as they try to portray it on social media. And every time we gather, we need to be reminded that regardless of the darkness of our moment, that God is working for our good and for His glory. That even if we don't see it, even if we don't understand it, and sometimes in the most surprising ways, you see, we're all given to nearsightedness. It's my problem. It's your problem. And we need a new perspective. We need to have our eyes lifted. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I am always very aware at the end of a text like this that there are men and women who are listening, who are right now in the middle of a dark, dark valley, and who may even wonder, does God see them at all? Does he know them? Has he entirely forgotten them? That has been the theme the last two to three weeks in this book of Isaiah. And Father, again today, for every listener, may they know with certainty that you are not only on the throne of the universe, but you are ruling and reigning over the individual day-to-day -day lives of your children. That you know us, you love us, you see us. You have a plan for our rescue. You have the long-range vision in mind. And in the middle of dark and trying times, we can lift our eyes up above the clouds and we can remind ourselves, behold your God. This world is not our ultimate home. We have a hope beyond the walls, beyond the gates. We live for a different city. God, would you anchor us there and then would you allow us to live lives of joy as a result? We ask this blessing in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.